were you disrupting yourself? How were you disrupting yourself? How were you disrupting yourself? On today's show. So imagine you're a medical doctor, right? A general practitioner. And you're very focused on the temperature of the patient, which would be, let's say, the profit. Well, maybe what you're going to do is you're going to put the thermometer in the fridge or in the oven, depending on what results you want to achieve. But you're not treating the patient. And so profit is a bit like this. It's a measure, but it's not the reality of the organization. Welcome to the Disrupt Yourself podcast a podcast where we provide strategies and advice for climbing the S-curve of learning in your professional and personal life, stepping back from who you are to slingshot into who you can be. I'm your host, Whitney Johnson, and today our guest is Hubert Jolie, former CEO of Carlson, member of the board of directors of Ralph Lauren and Johnson & Johnson, and currently chairman of Best Buy, where he was previously CEO for seven years. When Hubert took the job of CEO at Best Buy, they were in shambles. Word on the street was they were dead, pushed off their S-curve. But Hubert saw a different future for Best Buy, and he created it. The stock price more than quadrupled. He was named CEO of the year. The company was in crisis. He turned it around. At this moment, every company is in some sort of crisis. We've all been disrupted. It's not about deciding if we're going to jump to a new S-curve. We've just been pushed. Who better to talk about what to do next than Hubert Jolie? He's smart. His enthusiasm is infectious, a delightful human being. Welcome, Hubert. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Whitney. You're being very, very kind. So let's walk back to the beginning, to your early days. Tell us where you spent your childhood and what you wanted to be when you grew up. So Whitney, I grew up in France uh, in a middle-class family, uh, three brothers. I was number two uh, out of four. And this was a a very happy family. What did I want to do when I was growing up? So when I was 10, I first wanted to be a vet because my godfather was a vet and he would take me with him and we would take care of cows and sheep and So I discovered nature, but then after a while I said, no, that's actually not what I want to do. That's what he wanted to do, but that's not me. (laughs) You know, in my teenage years, at some point I decided I wanted to be in business and I wanted to run a company at some point in my life. I wanted to go to business school and at some point, you know, maybe in my 40s, I would be running a uh, a division of a company and uh, I liked the topics of economics and business, also felt glamorous. And then over time, I evolved my thinking in terms of why, why do I want to do this? What, what's my, what is the purpose? What is my purpose in life? And I thought that business could be a force for good. So back in the 90s, way before the, the, the trend around corporate purpose, I was giving conferences around, you know, the purpose of a corporation is not to make money, it's to contribute to the common good. And I felt that as a business leader, I could make a difference in the world, leading an organization, making a difference in people's lives and using the platform as a way to make a difference in the world. So in the 90s, you're saying the purpose of a corporation is to contribute to the common good. What did people say to you? Like, did they look at you like, what are you talking about? Or did people say, uh-huh, I get it. Like, what was the response when you started, um, started having that conversation with people? If you go first to the individual level, and if you ask people, why do we work? What is work? Is it a punishment or you know, a curse because we, 
with sins in paradise, right? The original sin. And a rabbi once told me, did you know, Uber, that man used to work in paradise, right? We were given the creation to uh, embellish it. So uh, work is not a punishment. Pain in work is a punishment, but uh, work is part of our fulfillment. We're the only beings that actually work. And we're called to uh, contribute to the creation by working. And the quest for meaning, I think, is essential to every human being, right? Uh, everybody has probably read Viktor Frankl's book, Men's Search for Meaning. It's essential to every human being. And then if you say to people, look, a, a company at the end of the day is a human organization made of individuals working together in pursuit of a goal. Of course, you need to be profitable, but it's more an outcome. But the the reason for being, the purpose has got to be different. And, you know, when I was the CEO of Best Buy, I actually told our shareholders that our purpose was not to make money, but to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs. So, Hubert, can you just connect the dots a little bit for us? So it, it's the 1990s. You're now in your 30s, I think, in your 30s. Yep. Yeah, in the 1990s. Right. And you have this thought. <laughs> Oh, well, let's hope so. Um, so you have this thought of like, I really want to focus on purpose, but can you, do you have any sense of where that came from? I mean, is it something that happened when you were growing up, the influence of your parents? Because it's, it's, it's a fascinating question. And I think people would be really like, so where did that come from? Why, why is that so, as you said, so, um, so important to you? So I can talk about a couple of pivotal moments. One was a couple of monks. I had a friend from college uh, who had gone on to go to business school, worked in consulting, and then joined a religious congregation in France. And, uh, you know, he once asked me together with another friend to help them, you know, with their organization, the organization of their worldly affairs. And following this, together with one of his uh, colleagues, uh, asked me to write with them an article about the philosophy and theology of work. And so I said, okay, let me do this <laughs> if I'm you know, competent to do this. But one of the things I did is I took a biblical index and I looked at every passage in the Bible that talks about work. And contrary to public, you know, uh, to common wisdom, work is actually a good thing in the Bible. We're, we're all influenced. Certainly I was influenced by this notion that uh, work was a punishment and in French, the word, the word for, for work is travail, which were, comes from the Latin tripalium, which means torture, right? So there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, labor, when a woman goes into labor, it's painful. It's the same word. So we have this notion, but when you actually look cover to cover with the help of a biblical index, you actually see that we're called to serving others. And the golden rule of, you know, do to thy neighbor uh, is, is there's an orientation that we're called upon to follow, to do good in the world through work. And so that became the topic of the article. And uh, so that was fruitful. And then the other moment was learning from a client. So I was at McKinsey and Company at the time. And one of my clients was the CEO of uh, Honeywell Bull, a, uh, a computer company. And he was also uh, a, a former McKinsey partner. And so he felt comfortable lecturing me and a couple of my colleagues. And he just got back from a, uh, from a seminar and he shared with me a framework, which I've always then carried with me. 
which is essentially the profit of a corporation is not to make money. So in business, you have three imperatives, he would say. You have the people imperative, which is you need to have, you know, if you're going to be in business, you need to have a team, a good team that's properly trained, equipped with the right tools, the right motivation. Then you have the business imperative, which is you need to have clients that, uh, that you serve effectively and that you make happy. And then you have the financial imperative, which is you need to have, you know, happy shareholders. And then he said, uh, you should refuse any trade-offs between these three and actually consider that they are ordered. So the excellence or excellence on the people imperative is what leads to excellence on the business imperative, which then leads to excellence on the financial imperative. But then you should not confuse uh, an imperative, which is a necessity, and the goal or the, the purpose. And say, so if you step back, you know, what could be the purpose of a human organization is to it's probably the fulfillment of the individuals and their contribution uh, to to the common good. He was not coming at it from a, uh, a religious standpoint, like my two friends, the monks. He was coming at it from a management and leadership standpoint. And so this deeply influenced me. And he gave me a number of tricks. For example, he said, uh, when you do a business review, don't start with finance. Even if it's the monthly results you're looking at, don't start with the financial results. End the meeting with the financial results. Start with a review of what's going on with people and organization, then the business side, customers, products, and so forth, and finish with finance. If you do this, you will always have time for finance because your CFO will make sure that you know you pay attention to the numbers. But if you start with the financial results, you will not have time for a review of people and customers. And so you'll miss the opportunity to actually work on the on the key drivers and you're confusing the outcome a measure with the purpose. And, and by the way, an excessive focus on profit is very dangerous. Number one, you know, if you focus too much on the results, you, you forget to focus on the drivers. Number two, anybody who believes that the net profit of a corporation calculated according to US GAAP or IFRS is a representation of economic reality is wrong. Mm. It's just a norm. And you know this, Whitney, because you've, you've grown up in that world. You know, accounting norms are very arbitrary. So imagine you're a medical doctor, right, a general practitioner, and you're very focused on the temperature of the patient, which would be, let's say, the profits. Well, maybe what you're going to do is you're going to put the thermometer in the fridge or in the oven, depending on what results you want to achieve, but you're not treating the patient. And so profit is a bit like this. It's a measure, but it's not the reality of the organization. Such a great metaphor. I don't, yeah, this idea of the thermometer, how you can manipulate it. If you know you want it to go up or down, just put it in the refrigerator. Fascinating. And people have done that, of course. Think about some of the greatest you know, corporate scandals in, in this country. Right. <laughs> think about right. Enron you know, or Quest or a few others, right? We, we all know yeah. what they are. What's also interesting is I asked you to talk about your business philosophy and how you came to it. And it's fascinating that it was both this conversation and this experience that you had with your friend and colleague that was studying to be a monk and studying the Bible and looking at the Bible dictionary and where it says, you know, lists work and then also from a McKinsey consultant. So just completely different polls, but still arriving at a similar conclusion. Let's talk about your career now, what you've done. Now you've got this purpose in place and, and this mindset and this approach and this framework for how you're thinking about life. Um, your career is actually the stuff of legends. Um, your role as CEO of Best Buy, I think, is a great example of that. 
Um, you turned the business around. It was very much struggling. Can you talk us through one or two things that you did immediately as soon as you took the reins as CEO? So Whitney, the traditional manual for a turnaround is cut, cut, cut. In fact, a lot of analysts and you know people well-intentioned was, were telling me you're going to need to close a number of stores and fire people and so forth. So like if people were the problem. So we did the opposite. So we started with people. One thing I did, the first week on the job, I spent working in stores in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and in Minneapolis so that I could listen to the frontliners because I felt that they had they would have the, the greatest insight in terms of uh, what was going on. And sure thing, I learned a ton. So, for example, I learned about you know showrooming and how people were coming to the stores and they were frustrating that sometimes the customers were leaving you know, empty-ended because they felt they could find the product uh, online cheaper. I learned that our search engine on the website was not working. And they gave me an example, type in Cinderella, and we found Nikon cameras. So uh, listening to the frontliners, then focusing on building the right team. You know, we all know this in business. If you have the right team, you can do wonders. And my approach to change management in a turnaround was to change management. That's what you uh, had to do. And then we were, <laughs> I, get, I get paid a lot to say these things. The, the image of the leader who is the smartest person in the room and knows everything, that's, I think that was, may have been okay in the 20th century, but that's not the approach today. So we worked together with the team to co-create the plan, didn't try to go for a perfect plan, because in the turnaround, I think the key thing is to get going and get some energy going. So I have this image, which is the, or the bicycle theory. If you try to lead, to direct a bicycle at standstill, you just can't do that. It, you fall, right? I mean, except you're, you're really good. So if the bicycle is moving, if it's not moving exactly in the right direction, it doesn't matter. You course correct. So in eight weeks, we created a plan that we presented to the investors, uh, which we called Renew Blue. And uh, we got going. And there was a number of principles, again, the opposite of what you do in a turnaround. And uh, so my turnaround manual is first, you focus on increasing revenue. It's amazing what revenue can do to help in a turnaround as opposed to a shrinking company. Uh, and so that leads you, of course, to take care of the customers. So we decided to match online prices, make sure our prices were competitive. We invested in the online shopping experience. We now ship as fast as Amazon. We're investing in the customer experience in the, in the stores. We partnered with the world's foremost tech companies like Samsung and Apple and Microsoft and Sony, they all invested in our stores because they needed a place where to showcase the fruit of their billions of dollars of, uh, of investments. Uh, and so all of this was contributing to the revenue growth and customer satisfaction. The second thing we did, so as it relates to cost, we have taken $2 billion of cost out as part of the turnaround, uh, but we first focused, you first focus on what I call non-salary expenses. So all of the expenditures that have nothing to do with headcount. And at most companies, people rarely see that, but it's the vast majority of the cost structure. Certainly at Best Buy, it was probably in the SGNA world, it was probably 70% of the, of the cost structure. And um, in fact, uh, non-salary expenses were about three quarters probably of the $2 billion of cost we took out. An example, you know, so we sell a lot of TVs, right? Uh, and as a result, we break a lot of them because they're beautiful, they're big, but they're very thin now. Mm -hmm. And so we probably broke for about $200 million of TVs every year, if you can imagine. 
And so we wow. had a project to reduce the TV junk out, working with the manufacturers on the design of the TVs, on the design of the packaging, on how to transport them, how to put them in the warehouse. We educated the customers on how to put them in their car if they wanted to get uh, take them themselves, how to install them and so forth. So that's a great saving because who wants to buy a broken TV, right? No one. <laughs> so you help the customers and you save money at the same time. So the third thing is you go after uh, uh, compensation and benefit. Benefits are a big part of the cost structure. So let's think about the health benefits, right? So if you can work with the the, the workforce to improve wellness, you know, people are going to be healthier and you're going to save on healthcare costs. And you only go after headcount as the fourth lever if one, which is revenue, plus two, which is non-salary expenses, plus three, which is comp and ban, is not sufficient. And you end with that because people are rarely the problem. They're not just a resource. They're the source of what's going to take to, to move the business, uh, the business forward. So our plan was largely articulated around that. And, you know, we, we turned the business around and then we moved to, but that was later on, a new phase of growth, which was purpose-driven around, you know, which we called building the new blue around this idea of enriching lives through technology by addressing key human needs. So that was the beginning of the journey. Oh, I love that. And so I'm thinking of, of you know, you talk about people first in the meeting and when it comes to cutting costs, you let people go last. And so it's revenue exactly. first non-salaried expenses second, then you've got comp and benefits, and then people are the last to go. And and so interesting to think about all the different ways that you looked to drive revenue. And so now I'm going to ask you the what I think is an obvious question. Today, every company is in crisis. And so what are your thoughts? And just kind of riff on this for a moment. How are CEOs that you're talking to thinking about this crisis? And how are you thinking about it? Um, how would you, if you were um, called to move into a new company today as a CEO and needed to go in, how would you apply this methodology? And just how are you thinking about helping a company turn around in this current situation? Well, I think that like in the case of Best Buy, because we like in the, you know, there's a parallel between the Best Buy crisis of 2012 and the COVID crisis, right? Because in both cases, it's the all you can eat menu of challenges, right? You have a health crisis, you have a human crisis, you have operational challenges. How do you operate in this environment? You have strategic challenges because everything is changing. You have cash, financial challenges. So for me, the same principles apply, and I call this leading with a sense of purpose and humanity. So start with people first, then go to customers and treat profits last. The way CEOs, and I'm so inspired by what I'm seeing around you know, the country in terms of the, the CEOs, in, no CEO is defining their performance today on the basis of their ability to hit the guidance, right? Or Good. you know how to maximize earnings per share. It's all it starts with people. So when the when the, this thing hit, it was all about the safety and wellness and well-being of the employees. And by the way, it's not just safety; it's it's all of the human needs. We, you know, people say you need to bring your whole self to work. Well. You know, now we work from home, so it's all intertwined on, on Zoom calls now. Have you noticed, right, we see kids, we see dogs, and so this, the entire human being, so it's the safety needs, but also the need for transparency, the need for trust, the need for meaning, you know, the need for respect. 
the need for mental health. And so companies have deployed extraordinary uh, initiatives to take care of that. Of course, they, people have tried to delay uh, uh, you know, following people as much as possible. They've increased the compensation of people on the front line. They made sure that people were safe. There's been ongoing communication you know, with uh, a lot of, uh, uh, I was going to say TLC on the part of CEOs. They do, of course, video now allows you to do so many extraordinary things. So people do office hours, they do happy hours. That means the employee in Shanghai or in Paris, they can actually see you all the time, whereas you would only visit them in the past, you know, infrequently. Uh, and so a lot of uh, attention to people in the initial stage. I think that most CEOs see this thing in phases. So there was the shelter in place phase, which we're coming towards the end of. Then there's the reopening. And then there's going to be thinking through post-COVID. So if I, if I move to reopening, a lot of attention to, you know, being clear about our purpose, right? Uh, so at Best Buy, you know, purpose is to enrich lives through technology by addressing key human needs. Do people need technology these days? Of course they do. Home office, people are working from home. They're learning from home. They need to feed the family, so refrigerators. So we've been considered an essential business in most states. And so we had to continue to operate. And so reviewing the processes to ensure we could continue to provide products and services to customers while paying attention to, uh, to safety of both employees and customers. So Corey, my successor, who is an amazing leader, uh, decided, even though she could have kept the stores open in most states, she decided to close them because she didn't feel that she could operate them safely, went in three days to contactless curbside pickup. And thanks to all of the investments we had made together around our digital capabilities, she's declared, I think, a month ago that... Uh, we've been able to, to keep at least 70% of the previous revenue. So uh, complete reinvention of the business. Now that things are reopening, she's thinking of, uh, she's reopened 200 stores through uh, appointments, uh, which is actually a great experience uh, because you know, you, you're sure you're gonna be able to deal with the kind of associate that you're looking to, maybe an appliance specialist. Uh, and from an economic standpoint, you know, hopefully, if you take the time to make an appointment, that means you actually want to buy something. And I think there is a there is an idea that I think that can provide hope because, you know, this is a very severe crisis. Companies are affected differently, but many companies are going to see demand shrink. Uh, some companies are going to disappear. And so we need at some point to focus on our uh, thinking about the strategy going forward. So it's a reset, not a restart. Mm -hmm. And I think companies that... Think about their strategy going forward with a focus on their purpose. And, you know, in your book around disrupting yourself, you talk about embracing constraints. So one of the new constraints is safety. But if you think about how to work around safety, I think this will lead to enormous innovation. So let me give you a few examples. I gave one already for Best Buy, but another one, Adobe, the software company. Every year, you know, in the old world, they would gather about 15,000 of their customers and partners in Vegas for a big event. Well, this year, of course, they couldn't do it, right? And so they did it digitally. They were able to reach 80,000 people. So oh. think about the reach that this gives you. <laughs> right. 
Right. So, so think about now telemedicine, right? Telemedicine was its, in its emphasy before the crisis. I think the, the federal administration has removed a number of barriers. So the number of telemedicine consultation has gone up by a factor of probably 100, if not more. So you can improve the customer experience, increase the reach, reinvent businesses completely. There's a whole host of ways you can do this remotely and touch actually a much larger number of people. So I think that the advice is think about your purpose, think about the constraint, which is safety, and innovate with the help of technology to create more reach, a better customer experience, and a whole new business model. I think it's interesting how we just keep coming back to purpose as our anchor and and the reopening phase. Um, yes, you could be tactical, but I love what you said is, look, no, you've got to focus on what your purpose is because once you do that and also you think about your people and the safety of your people, which you've mentioned is top priority, then you can go to the business and then the profit will come because you're going to be willing to innovate around your business model and you'll figure it out because you're focused on on purpose and people, and then everything will fall from that. That's fantastic. What in your life has prepared you for now, for what you are doing right now? I, I think it's interesting. You're managing, the, from the one or two conversations I've had with you, you are managing through this. Not to say it's not hard, not to say it's not tremendously difficult, but you're managing through what are one or two events that you've had in your life or practices that you follow that are allowing you to remain in an upbeat, optimistic, realistic, but optimistic, we're going to get through this approach? I must give credit to my wonderful coach, Marshall Goldsmith. <laughs> I, yeah, I think that in Yay, Marshall, Marshall Goldsmith, yes, in his infomercials, <laughs> I think I can be his before and his after picture, you know, what, it, what I look like before Marshall and then now. What are some of the things that I've learned from, from Marshall that are really helpful? So if I go back, I started to work with Marshall back in 2009. And, uh, you know, I grew up and I went to business school. I was top of my class. I went to uh, work with McKinsey. So I really believed that being smart was really important. That's how you were successful. And Marshall has written this wonderful book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And I think around page 25 or 30, he's got a list of the 20 quirks of successful people. Marshall only works for successful people to right, help them get better. And I had 13 out of the 20 quirks. Um, and a lot of them around wanting to be the smartest person in the room, adding too much value. And so, uh, you know, I grew up in a world where the role, the leader was somebody really strong, some kind of superhero. I'm going to say Superman, right? Because it was a male-dominated world. That's got to have the answers, work with other smart people, create the strategy, ask other people to translate this into an implementation plan, and then put incentives in place and hope that good things happen. And we all know now that uh, the role of the leader is not to uh, be the smartest person in the room, but to create an environment in which others can be successful. And that, that, that completely changes the, the mindset. Um, and so amongst the implications is the role of the leader in creating energy, right? Because people look up to you. And, and, and if, you, if you degrade other people, if, you, um, you know, if you're depressed, the, the, the entire organization is going to be 
depressed and it's going to be degrading other people. So you have really to pay attention to how you lead, what kind of a leader you want to be. And so I've also learned that I am uh, not the product of my circumstances, but of my decision. I think it's uh, Steve Covey who said that. And so I don't, I don't control the, the virus, right? I did not create it. I, there's a Latin phrase, which is illegitimi non carburandum. So I'll translate it, right? So it is, don't let the bastards grind you down. Hmm. And so the, the virus is a bastard. Let's agree, right? It's devious. It's a, it's, it's a bad thing. But why should I give the power to the virus to decide how I feel? I get to decide how I feel. And so I get to decide every day that I can try to be the best version of myself uh, and try to make a positive difference on people around me. So in France, you know, if I do a bit of a caricature, we've been pessimistic in France since Voltaire. Uh, and so a long time ago, two centuries ago. And one of the things I love about this country is the Jeffersonian uh, optimism hmm. uh, in the pursuit of happiness. And even when the country is down, this is not a perfect country, right? Uh, the, but we get, I'm so impressed with me by how business leaders around me are trying to do the best they can to lead through this crisis, not criticizing others, not looking for excuses, right? We love this leader. He's got the best excuses in the world. He's the world champion as excuses. No, that's not who we want as a leader. We want people who feel they can make a difference and that lead with a with this sense of purpose and, and humanity. So I think a lot of what we've talked about on my journey around purpose, and then Marshall, I give him the credit. He helped me discover feet forward and focusing on trying to be better. The question I'm wondering is, what did that intervention look like? Do you remember, because you're saying Marshall really came in and said, hey, Hubert, not the smartest guy in the room. Well, you may be, but you can't tell everyone you are. And do you remember that moment of intervention where, what did that look like? What did that sound like? Because I, I think people are going to be really curious of what happened, yeah. because that's a pretty big, that's a 180. Tell us a little bit more yeah. about that. Yeah. And before Marshall, if somebody had told me, uh, this guy is, and I always say guy, because this is a man, this used to be a man uh, dominated world. Fortunately, we've Certainly at Best Buy, we've been able to change that. But uh, this person, yes, my successor is a woman. Ha more than half of the board is, is women. Uh, yes. This person is working with a coach. I would have said, what's wrong with him? Mm. You know? <laughs> mm. And with Marshall, so Marshall came in and it impressed me that he was working for a great leader. So I said, okay, that's cool. And then I realized 100% of the top 100 tennis players in the world, oh, they have a coach, right? 100% of the best football teams have a coach. In fact, every football team has a coach. And so as business leaders, we should have a coach, all of us. And then, of course, in Marshall's approach, you know, so, of course, he does the 360, talks to everybody on your team and your board, tells you everything you're doing well, sends, send that to me as a separate document. And then the next day, sent a document with suggestions and he told me, look, you, you don't need to do anything about this. It's your decision, right? These people don't get to decide and you may want to do nothing or you can decide to pick one, two or three things that you want to get better at. 
And you, if you put it this way, who doesn't want to get better at something? In tennis, mm-hmm. I've been wanting to improve my forehand for the last 10 years. So I've been working with my coach, John, and I think my forehand is now better. So as a leader, there's always something I want to get better at. Now, what was painful with me was in the next step, which is when I had to sit down with my team and say, all right, thank you very much for all of the positive feedback. On the basis of what you've told me, I've decided to work on these three things. Number one, number two, number three. Sounds easy to do. Really hard. Mm-hmm. And then I told them, look, I'm going to need help to work on these three things. So I'm going to follow up with each of you to ask you for advice on these three things. It was excruciating pain to do this. But I think if I reflect on all of this, I think and it has an implication for this crisis. You know, again, if you have the model of the superhero, you know, I think it, things don't work. You know, the model of the leader today is somebody much more human, human much more vulnerable. And there's a question is, how, how do you, how can you be like that, like the leaders that are leading our companies today? I think it starts with taking care of yourself. So Hortense Le Gentil, our common friend, has this image of if you're in a, on a plane um, and, you know, you hit turbulences, the, um, the steward or stewardess, the flight attendants tell you to put the mask on yourself first before you can help others. And leaders in this crisis need to do this. They need to hit the pause button, reflect on who they are, who do, what kind of a leader they want to be in this time of crisis. How do they want to be remembered? So hit the pause button and reflect on that. You need to establish a daily routine to be able to meditate, you know, take care of your health physically, but also your mental and spiritual health. At the end of the day, maybe reflect on the day. Ask yourself some daily questions. Have I done my best to be this, this, and that for you know the people, the, the employees, the customers, uh, and so forth. And then think about the next day and what you know what kind of day do you want to have tomorrow. Use all of your body parts, not just your left brain, right, but your heart, your soul, your guts. You're a whole person. Make sure you have a good support system and that you're going to you know, pace yourself because this is going to be. So take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. Yeah, so good. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Hortense Lagentie. I can't pronounce her name as beautifully as you do, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. One of the things I think is interesting as I'm listening to you talk is that when you had this, let's call it intervention of here are all the things, Hubert, that you're doing well. And here are a few things that you could work on, but you get to choose, right? It's your choice. You use the word excruciating. And I think that that's so fascinating. And I wonder if if a part of what's happening right now is because we are all addicted to being right. This is something that Judith Glazer said, who was our colleague and part of the Marshall Goldsmith 100, said we're addicted to being right. And so when we hear about things that we could do differently, it is excruciatingly painful. And I I do think, and I'm curious about your thoughts, is, is that... At this point in time, because we're already in a lot of pain that's excruciating in in many ways, there's this wonderful quote from Albert Camus, I think a fellow Frenchman, who said, in the depths of winter, I finally learned that within me there lay an invincible summer. And I, I, I just wonder if part of the opportunity that we all have right now for this reset, for this reopening phase, if you will, not only of businesses, but of, of our lives is to say, okay, it is excruciating what is happening, but maybe it's more excruciating if I don't take this as an opportunity to change and to be different and, and to do things differently. 
than I have in the past. Any any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, this is this is so essential. So a mistake I made for a long time was to confuse performance and perfection. Mm. And again, there's a story with one of the monks. Yeah, uh, so this monk, Father Samuel, uh, once told me that, uh, you know, the, the, the quest for perfection is evil. Strong mm. word. I said, what yeah. do you mean? <laughs> no, because I've been on that journey for a long time. And he said, well, and of course, he's a religious man, right? He's a monk. And he says, well, the fallen angel, which is the devil, thought he could do it on himself. And in this case, clearly a he, right? Because only mm -hmm. a he could think that. And so he says he leaves God and sets up his own business because he doesn't need anybody else. And then Samuel, the monk, said, in contrast, Christ comes to touch us in our imperfections, in our vulnerability, where we're the weakest. And mm -hmm. forget about if you're not you know, Christian or religious, Think about this, uh, and Bernie Brown, of course, talks about this. Uh, if you're not able to be vulnerable, you cannot connect with other people. Love is about connecting vulnerabilities. If it's, you can admire somebody who is perfect, you cannot love somebody who is perfect. In order to be loved and uh, love somebody, I think we all experience this, we need to accept our imperfections and not see the imperfections of others as a problem. Because from a business standpoint, if you're really driven by perfection and you're working in a team, and of course on the team, you have human beings and these human beings, of course, they're imperfect. So all of a sudden they become an obstacle to perfection. But if you are not driven by perfection, but by doing great things together and the journey is as important as the outcome, then you get to know each other. And uh, by the way, none of us need to correct everything that's wrong in us. This is, you know, we're always going to be wrong. So sometimes it's more, it's better to focus on, you know, growing the wonderful qualities you have. And, and so have a, an expensive view of life as opposed to we need to correct the imperfection. So I think in this crisis, if we thought for a moment that we were controlling the world and that as a as a species, we were all powerful. Oh, <laughs> do we have an awakening? And then we say, well, life is a mess, you know, and we don't control it. But that doesn't mean that we cannot be loving, that we cannot do amazing things for our fellow human beings and for each other. So beautiful. And the thought that just came to me that the piecing together is that one of the reasons, um, and this is something I personally struggle with, I tend to want to go straight to the task at hand, not to, not to the, you know, to the business and to the profits, not to the people. And yet, one of the things that you just said that really drew this out for me is that if we will talk about the people first, then right. we leave very little room for perfectionism. And yep. so one of That's the right. reasons it's so important is to crowd perfectionism out of the room because it's such an obstacle to anything that is productive or, dare I say, magical. Um, so thank you for making that connection for me. So you, in 2019, passed the baton as CEO of Best Buy. And in 2020, you were passing the baton as executive chairman. One of the questions that I often get from people is, how do I know? How do I know when it's time for me to jump to a new S-curve, when I'm at the top of that curve and it's time to jump? 
How do I know? Can you just share with us some thoughts, like, you know, reflections on how did you know it was time to pass the baton? I must say, with me, I'm very, very proud of how we've managed the succession at, uh, at Best Buy, because in many ways, the way to evaluate, you know, your impact is in what uh, stage you leave the organization and how well it's going to do after you're gone. And the transition to Corey Barry has just been spectacular. She's, she's such an amazing uh, leader. So the story is that, uh, you know, in the second half of 2018, I started to spend more time on this question of when would be the, the right time. Uh, and I felt it was the right time. I reached that conclusion, you know, gradually between the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. Uh, number one, I felt I had accomplished, you know, quite a bit of what I had set to accomplish when I joined the company in 2012. Second, I felt that the team that I had put in place, um, you know, they were doing amazing. And I was really impressed uh, by them. Um, and so I felt that, uh, you know, they, they, they could take it to the next level. The other thing that was more tactical is that we had said that in the, in the fall of 2019, we would do an investor meeting to update the investors on our strategy and lay out the next, you know, phase. And I felt that the people who should be standing in front of the investors should be the people responsible for carrying out the strategy going, uh, going forward. And altogether, I was content with what I had accomplished. I had been the CEO for maybe 15 to 20 years of different uh, companies. Uh, I had become a grandfather. So really a combination of, uh, of things. It felt, it felt ready. And it's, uh, again, use all of your body parts, right? So your brain, you know, your heart, your soul, your body. You have to listen to your, to your body. These, these are not full-time jobs. These are all the time jobs and being a CEO for 15 or 20 years, uh, yes, it's pretty demanding. Mm -hmm. And so um, we had worked extensively on succession planning and executive development. And I felt that, uh, you know, as a board, we had good options with a good solution. And, and so that made me feel comfortable that uh, we could uh, we could do it and pass the baton to the next uh, to uh, the next generation. I also felt very excited about the next chapter. You have because you have to look, have to something to look forward to, and so I feel that the next ten to twenty years are going to be very exciting. I have a ton of things I want to do. I think I can make a difference in a different way, but that was very important as well. Okay, and we uh, we want to talk about that in just a second. So basically, you you'd gotten to the point where you'd accomplished. You had this S curve, and you're like, here's what I want to get done. You got to the top of the S curve. You also had people that were coming along that S curve. You wanted to give them the opportunity, and you had something to jump to, which was, um, let's talk about that. What is next? Where can people find you if they want to further engage? Just tell us about what is what this new S curve is is looking like for you. So uh, it's very exciting. So my purpose doesn't change. My purpose is to try to make a positive difference on people around me and use the platform I have to make a positive difference in the world. And uh, specifically for this next phase, I feel that I can add my voice and my energy to what I feel is a necessary and timely refoundation of business and capitalism around purpose and humanity. And I can do this in a variety of ways. I'm writing a book, uh, which is going to be called The Heart of Business. 
mm. where we've done 13 out of the 15 chapters. It's going to come out early next year. Uh, I'm joining the faculty at uh, Harvard Business School. Uh, and then I'm a, a, a member of boards. And finally, I want to, you know, it's about giving back. So it's helping others, helping other teams, executives, you know, um, get the benefit maybe of um, some of the things I've learned. So I, you know, I can do this through the books, through teaching, through boards, and through mentoring and uh, and coaching. And together with our Tense Le Gentil, we're experimenting uh, a, a dual approach to coaching, combining our skills around the, the person and, you know, uh, inside uh, who you are, your true self, and connecting it to the leader you're meant to be in my business background and, and passion for purpose and humanity. So we're trying to create some good in the world. Oh, so exciting. So so I guess um, if people want to find out more about you, do they go to, do you have a web, do they go to a website, Hubert Jolie? Like what's the best place for you? For LinkedIn, LinkedIn, is, LinkedIn, LinkedIn is a good okay. place. Okay, so um, this brings me to everyone, you are about to get so excited. So here's what's going to happen. Um, we are going to be doing something very special. So if you go, if you have a something that you would like to understand, to know, help on, if you will submit a question to wj at whitneyjohnson.com, we are going to select up to three people for a 15 to 20 minute conversation where we, so Hubert, myself, two exceptional executive coaches, including Hortense Lagenti and my business partner, Amy Humble, we are going to troubleshoot with you around a business challenge. Isn't that amazing? So we're, the four of us are going to collectively troubleshoot with you around a business challenge. And all you have to do to be eligible is to include a question, something that you're trying to figure out, something you're grappling with, send it to wj at whitneyjohnson.com. We will select three of you. And um, this episode is going to be airing um, on May 26th. And so the entries for us doing this with you will close on June 2nd. It is going to be so much fun and we can't wait to have this conversation with you all. Okay, so Hubert, as we wrap up, um, anything you want to say on that or any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? I very much look forward to this opportunity. And the final thoughts is, you know, again, take care of yourself before you take care of others around you. And then think about this next phase in this crisis as in the opportunity to reset versus just restart and uh, disrupt yourself, disrupt your business. I think this idea uh, that you have in your book of embracing constraints and reinventing your business around purpose and safety, I think is a very promising, very exciting idea. Hubert, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute treat. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you, thank you. What a delight to hear from such an accomplished, heart-centered leader. Hubert is a talented storyteller, fun and inspiring. As you heard in the interview, I had a number of takeaways real time. First, around keeping my task-focused approach at bay and focusing on people first. That's not my nature, and it will continue to take a conscious effort. But when I make the effort, I've seen the fruits of that. I also loved Hubert's discussion of work and what he learned as he studied in the Bible and with his friends who were monks. 
when we can plant our feet in who we are and what we believe and then draw the biggest circle possible, one that can include knowledge and information from as many sources as we can put our hands on, we will climb our S-curve as a leader faster. Following the interview, our engineer and interview producer, Melissa Ruddy, shared a reflection she'd had when Hubert talked about being the smartest person in the room. Years ago, she'd heard a sermon from Pastor Andy Stanley where he shared that the greatest measure of maturity is what we do with authority and power when it's given to us. As in, what do you do when you discover that you are the most powerful person in the room? Stanley tells the story of King David to show us what not to do, but then he talks about the last week in the life of Jesus. When gathered with his disciples, Jesus was the most powerful one in the room, and what did he do? He washed their feet. We'll link to the video in the show notes with some timestamps in case you don't have time to watch the entire lesson, but I wanted to share this powerful segment from the end. What do you do when you're the king? What do you do when you're the most powerful and influential person in the room? What do you do when you've got the whole world in your hands? John says he, Jesus, got up, put a towel around his waist, and washed the disciples' feet. When you're the most powerful person in the relationship, and you will be today, probably, in a relationship, You leverage your power for the people you're in relationship with, whether they're in your family or on your team. So powerful. Reminder that if there is something that Hubert, Hortense, Amy, and I can do to be of help to you with a business challenge, email me at wj at whitneyjohnson.com by June 2nd and give us an idea of what you'd like help with in that email. We'll choose three people to have a 15-minute conversation with in the hopes that we can be of service to you. Thank you again to Hubert Jolie for being our guest. Thank you to sound engineer Whitney Job, producer Melissa Ruddy, managers Sarah Duran and Macy Robison, content contributors Virginia Kivligan, Jennifer Richardson, and Nancy Wilson. I'm Whitney Johnson, and this is Disrupt Yourself. Yes, yes.